Hello there. You're listening to The Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to be talking about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. And we're doing our first writer's analysis on the legendary screenwriter and playwright, Aaron Zorkin. Oscar nominations they came out this past Monday and so let's talk about some of the things that happened there we got our best picture lineup eight movies not 10 which they're going to switch to doing they have to do 10 next year and all the years after that they could have done it this time but they chose to do eight and the ones that got in are The Father Judas and the Black Messiah Nomadland Mank Minari Promising Young Woman Sound of Metal and The Trial of the Chicago 7, which is Aaron Sorkin's film that we will certainly be talking about later on in this episode. That all meant that Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and One Night in Miami got snubbed, which for me was pretty shocking, at least the One Night in Miami one. But how do you feel about this best picture lineup, Dylan? Yeah, I mean, if I was a betting man uh, and all the votes were tallied in, and they did 10 instead of 8. Uh, Ma Rainey and One Night in Miami would probably be the other two that would have been pushed up there with the rest of them. I was a little surprised that things like Sound of Metal and Minari got picked and The Father got picked over Ma Rainey and One Night in Miami just because Ma Rainey and One Night in Miami are so much more popular. They're more seen. They're on Amazon and Netflix, so they're promoted a lot more than Minari would be. And the sound of metal, well, sound of metal is on Amazon too. So Minari and the father aren't as promoted as much. So it was a little surprising, but I mean, for better or for worse, I think the eight that they picked, except for maybe Trial of the Chicago Seven, are all very good movies. <laughs> well, we'll get to your feelings about Trial of the Chicago Seven later, but yeah, I think they're all well deserved, and it just would have been nice to have Marini and One Night in Miami up there, but mm-hmm. certainly a good lineup i think yeah Um, so best picture we will have to see how that'll shape up as we get closer haven't seen all of them yet haven't seen nomadland or minari or the father um, but we will definitely try to catch those in the weeks ahead so that we can do some reviews on them and we can be informed about our predictions for Mm -hmm. the oscars which we will do probably the week before it happens but yeah so that's exciting news there Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Kaluuya are both nominated for the supporting actor category, despite both of them being the two leads in the film. Kaluuya makes sense. That's actually a supporting actor role, but Mm -hmm. I don't understand how Lakeith Stanfield, the main character, the protagonist, got a supporting nom, but the Oscars are weird, man. I don't know. I mean, Warner Bros. promoted it and advertised for Lakey Stanfield to be nominated for best actor in a leading role. But at the end of the day, it comes down to the people who are voting and they voted for him to be in the supporting actor role for whatever reason. I don't know why Uh, it shakes out the way it shakes out, I guess. And I meant that Delroy Lindo was missing. That would have been a lead actor nomination, I think. But if they're going to start switching from lead to supporting out of nowhere, Mm -hmm. you think that would have been one that, that his performance there would have been recognized. I never saw mm-hmm. the, the Five Bloods, so I don't know whether or not it's as great as people were saying. 
but mm-hmm. I know a lot of people were upset that he did not get any recognition from the Golden Globes or from now at the Oscars. So, yeah, I think the Five Bloods in general was just a movie that a lot of people missed this year. It just kind of went over the radar. So I'm not surprised that Delroy Lindo didn't get nominated, even though I'm sure it was a great performance. Uh, I haven't seen the movie, but I've seen him in a lot of other things like uh, uh, Malcolm X. He's great in, in a lot of other movies. And so I know Netflix was advertising for Delroy Lindo to be nominated for Best Actor in a Leading Role. So putting him in a supporting category, I mean, it makes more sense than Lakeith Stanfield for Judas and the Black Messiah. But I mean... It is what it is. It probably just flew over people's radar. They probably just didn't consider it as much as some of the other people that were nominated. Right. So I guess it, it did, is what it is. Yeah, it did come out way earlier yeah. in the Oscar season. I mean, it was summer 2020, so that was yep. still a distant way from where we were. Mm-hmm. But okay, so what about the screenplay category for original screenplay, Dylan? Who's in there? Uh, Shaka King and some other people who wrote Judas and the Black Messiah are nominated. Uh Minari is nominated Promising Young Woman for Emerald Fennel, uh, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of Chicago 7 for our main man, Aaron Sorkin. They're all nominated for original screenplay. Uh, these are all great scripts, except maybe Trial of Chicago 7. <laughs> we'll get there, I guess. I mean, Aaron Sorkin's a great writer. It's the whole point of the episode, but we'll get to Trial of Chicago 7 later. They're all great scripts. Uh, I'd be okay if any of them won. Uh, I'm looking forward to see how that category shakes out. But more importantly is the best director category because we have for the first time ever two women nominated at the same time chloe zhao and emerald funnel for nomadland and promising a woman respectively and two upsets lee isaac chung and thomas vinterberg who uh took over from the golden globes they knocked out sorkin for draw chicago seven and regina king regina king for one night in miami which is really interesting. I mean, I saw Minari. I think Lee Isaac Chung is a great director. I think the movie came out really good. And then I just saw Another Round last week, and I loved it. I think Thomas Vinterberg earned this, I, at least more than Aaron Sorkin. So I'm really glad to see his name up there and get him getting some recognition. So I think that's really neat. Yeah, definitely a shout-out to all of them. And of course, David Fincher got in for Mank, mm-hmm. which was expected but given those other upsets good to see that he actually made it in there but yeah another solid category there but this was like you mentioned a very historical oscars so what are some of the other firsts that came about so there's a lot of people of color nominated this year uh steven ewan is the first asian american he's of korean descent nominated for best actor in a leading role uh, along with him is chadwick boseman and Riz Ahmed, who is a, the first Pakistani nominated for an acting category in general, I believe. And uh, in the Best Actress category, Viola Davis, Andrew Day. In the Supporting Actor category, Daniel Kaluuya, Leaky Stanfield, Leslie Odom Jr. Uh, supporting Actress category, Yoo Jung Yoon, who's also Korean, uh, for, direct, or for writing Shaka King and producing Shaka King and Ryan Coogler. For directing Lee Isaac Chung and Chloe Zhao, just a lot of representation just general representation for people of color which is a great leap forward for the academy from what was it two years ago was oscar so white two or three years ago i don't think i think i think it was like five years ago but there's also i think two instances of oscar so white Mm -hmm. 
there was the <clears throat> first one that happened, and then a little later, it was essentially the same, except I think one non-white person in an acting category. Mm -hmm. People were like, how is this still happening? But the Academy did take a lot of uh, strides in diversifying who's in the Academy, and we're seeing that reflected now and seeing a broader range of talent recognized, mm -hmm. which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And there were a couple more snubs, like we talked about earlier, Thomas Vinterberg beating out Aaron Sorkin and Regina King, and uh, Jack Fincher, who's David Fincher's dad, who wrote Mank, was also beaten out of Best Original Screenplay by The White Tiger, which is an interesting sort of surprise to pop up. So that's interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think our front runners, of course, are Nomadland and Chloe Zhao for maybe writing, most likely directing in picture, and maybe best actress. So Nomadland should probably be coming out ahead. Uh, Mank could probably win a lot of the production design, costume design sort of awards. Mm -hmm. uh, I could see Sound of Metal winning best sound. That for just sure. kind of makes sense to me. <laughs> Definitely. Um, but yeah, we'll go over our full predictions in a future show. But definitely, it seems right now, Nomadland and Chloe Zhao are the ones to beat. Mm -hmm. Mank has the most nominations with 10, and then a lot of the other ones had six. Um, but yeah, it does seem like heading into the Oscars this time around, Nomadland and Chloe Zhao are the, the big front runners. Yeah. Also this week, they announced the Razzie nominations. So for Worst Picture, we have Fantasy Island, 365 Days, Absolute Proof, the, yeah. the My Pillow guy. That's really yes, funny. Yes, he did a little, it was absurd, but he like paid for a spot on Newsmax to air the film, which is just about the election fraud lies. That's and really then they fun. nominated him for Worst Picture, which I think is hilarious. Doolittle, which was the RDJ movie, and Music, which probably deserves the win. Uh, worst Actor, Robert Downey Jr. is notable being in there, which is really funny, and Adam Sandler for Hubie Halloween. And what I think is really interesting is for Worst Actress, uh, Glenn Close is nominated for Worst Actress for Hillbilly Elegy, and she's also nominated for an Academy Award for the same performance. Very interesting. She's going for both. She wants the high and the low. It'd be funny if she won both. That would be. Probably won't, but that would be hilarious. Yeah. We also have Kristen Wiig for Wonder Woman 84. She got that Worst Actress nomination. And then Worst Screen Combo, we got Maria Bakalova and Rudy Giuliani, which will probably win. And That's really Because cool. that was, <laughs> wow, win event. But yeah, those really are cool. the Razzies. Not going to do predictions about that, but that's a little fun thing to look at every Oscar season. Of course. And moving on into our box office breakdown. So last week we said that this weekend was going to be essentially a snooze fest, that nothing major was going to happen, no big pictures were being released, and we were mostly right except for one tiny little caveat of, you know, we have a new number one highest grossing movie of all time. Avatar has reclaimed their spot from Avengers Endgame, thanks to a re-release in China, where they earned about $21 million, and they now sit at $2.81 billion all-time, worldwide, which mm. has just inched ahead of Endgame. And remember, they had a soft re-release in July of 2019, because it originally came out in April, 
then towards the end of the typical theatrical run back when <laughs> a lot of movies actually came out week to week and mm-hmm. so some get pushed out they had a little softer release where they included that stupid hulk thing at the end the deleted <laughs> scene which was yeah oh. the cgi wasn't finished it was so stupid they should have just it was a re-release but they included some new stuff in it to try to play it off as it wasn't a re-release but they definitely did that just to become the number one movie and then now avatar mm-hmm. has returned the favor so that's an interesting little tidbit there we now have a new number one movie and do you think this is going to be a little game they play back and forth and it's just disney doing it i mean they're playing yeah, chess definitely. with themselves i mean yeah I mean, Disney will come out on top no matter what, of course, but I think they're just going to go back and forth. And I think people like watching them go back and forth, even though they're just making money off of themselves and their own competition. And I think it'll just double back on once Avatar 2 comes out. If it performs as well, it'll be like a trio of the three of them competing back and forth, re-releasing, on and on. And so our number one highest grossing movie is going to be something that has already come out that has just been re-released for a long time until something new maybe comes out. Maybe they come out with a really new Star Wars movie. Or they take the MCU and bring it to a new level. Maybe they can bring it out or Avatar. Right. Yeah, I really wonder what is going to be the movie that dethrones Avatar slash Endgame and finally gets across the three billion mark. Because, I mean, when you think of Avatar, which really is impressive that that was a standalone original mm-hmm. IP. Um, yeah, But that got a lot of hype because it was the 3D technology and mm-hmm. the amazing use of that by James Cameron. That was a whole spectacle in itself. And then Endgame, of course, had a 21-film build-up. So those are the two it things takes a that lot. Yeah, got close to 3-bill. The only thing behind that was Titanic, which was its own whole thing. Um, so what is going to be the next film that breaks away and surpasses these? I have no clue. It'll be interesting to see which one will finally do it. But for I'll, now, we're going to yeah. have to stick with this horse race between the two. I want to see what the first movie that crosses the three billion mark uh, in its first release will be. Not re-release, but an original release crossing three billion. That would be interesting to see in and of itself because we've never seen that before. I don't know if that'll be an MCU movie or maybe Star Wars throw something out there or some other established franchise. Because I can't imagine nowadays another original idea coming out like Avatar that'll just explode. It's just hard to pull people in for CGI like new advanced CGI when they've seen all that before. Like it's everywhere nowadays. So it's harder to draw people in with that sort of thing. So I don't know. I mean, it's probably going to have to be something from an established franchise. Probably. Which one that'll be? Who knows? Again, I just don't know if MCU will be able to reach those heights or a new Star Wars. But one of them, one day, we'll make a show and we'll be like, guys, it happened. Three billion. Mm -hmm. But for now, we'll have to wait and see. But on the other end of the spectrum, making not a lot of money at all, is Disney's Raya and the Last Dragon. Oof. It had 5.7 million this weekend, bringing it to a domestic total of 16 million. So mm-hmm. COVID season, there's an explanation for it, but not doing great. Not at all. Just really abysmal to be honest. I'm surprised Tom and Jerry is doing this well. Tom and Jerry came in second with 4.1 million when last week it made 6.6. I thought it was going to make closer to three and it gained an extra million for my prediction. So it exceeded my expectations. It's at 28.2 in total, which is impressive for 
a Tom and Jerry live action movie that isn't very good. That is also on HBO Max for free. Like I'm impressed during a pandemic. (laughs) Defies all logic, but it's holding on. It beat out Chaos Walking, which was in the number two spot last week when it debuted. Now it has fallen to number three with 2.2 million for a total of 6.9 million. So this one certainly takes the cake of disappointing, underwhelming performances, even in the COVID era. Yeah, true disappointment. That and Cherry was also kind of a disappointment. I saw some scenes from Cherry that's not does not hold up to what some people thought it would be. Oof. Yeah, Tom Holland, not not a great uh, couple of movies that just got released for him. But I guarantee you'll have a hit later this year with Spider-Man. So if I was him, I wouldn't be too worried. Yeah, he's he's definitely got that Marvel money coming in, so he's he's good. Yeah. Our box office prediction for this upcoming week is not anything too major. There's no big releases in theaters, so it's just going to be Raya and Tom and Jerry fighting again. Nothing huge is coming out, so nothing huge is going to draw any money. But the one notable thing is that Justice League is releasing on Thursday on HBO Max. We're not going to have any numbers for that because I doubt Warner Bros. is going to release any information, but if they do, we'll let you know. So I'm assuming it's going to be a huge draw. People have been wanting this for a long time. So we're going to watch it. So HBO Max, here we come. Our next episode next week will definitely be a discussion of the Justice League Snyder Cut, the four movie, the, what was it, four year build up now to seeing it. So that'll be interesting. And this Friday, I think on Disney Plus, doesn't the Falcon Winter Soldier show drop? At least his first episode. Yeah. Yes. So that'll be an interesting little DC Marvel thing. Again, we won't really know the full numbers of who's streaming what, but it'll be interesting to see which one has claimed the sort of water cooler talk, which I guess now is the Twitter talk, but which one is discussed more this weekend. Mm-hmm. That'll be an interesting thing to see. I'm going to guess Justice League because there's more build up to it, but unless Falcon and the Winter Soldier just takes off in the first episode, it's right. probably going to be Justice League. I agree with you there because I think the people who hate Justice League will be raging against it and the people Mm -hmm. who love it will be, I mean, just going off about it all the time without stopping. So I think that definitely will dominate the discussion. I've read some early reviews of people who have seen it already and they've been talking about, you know, it has its fair share of problems on its own, but it's definitely an improvement from the Joss Whedon version, which is good to hear like a lot of character storylines like cyborg and uh the flash their storylines have been fleshed out more rather than just being side characters which is uh important for the overall story so i'm looking forward to watching it good that'll be awesome so again next week we will get to that but for now let's get into our aaron sorkin writer's analysis tell me a bit about the sorkmeister himself how did he get started as a writer? Tell me everything about him, Dylan, since you stalked him as part of your research. So Aaron Sorkin was born in Manhattan in 1961. He grew up in the suburbs of New York, and he originally had a big passion for acting, apparently. And he wanted to be an actor, and he went to Syracuse, and he graduated with a bachelor's in music theater. After a long uh, struggle, he failed some classes in his first year, and he had to leave and come back and really push hard to get through into the acting program. And he graduated with a bachelor's in musical theater. Then he spent a long time in New York just doing odd jobs here and there, restaurants, uh, house sitting. And when he was house sitting one time, he came across a typewriter. And 
the story goes that he started writing and that he felt a happiness that he never felt before. And so he continued to pursue that. He started writing more and more and he really liked it. He produced two or he wrote and had two plays produced that were that earned him a writer's agent that represented him and got plays put out there for people to make and eventually got a play produced called A Few Good Men. And that was his big, big breakthrough is A Few Good Men was a play and then the options or the rights were sold off to be made into a movie. And he went and worked over with Rob Reiner and the producers of the movie to work on a script for the movie. And it eventually got turned into a big film that was uh, starring Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, Demi Moore. And it was a huge hit, huge box office numbers. And people loved it. And then after A Few Good Men, he transitioned into TV. So he went from plays to movies, and now he's in TV. His first TV show was called Sports Night, which was a bit of a mess when it came out. Critics liked it. People liked it. But in the first season, there was this problem with a laugh track. It was a comedy sort of thing. And back then in the 90s, when you had a comedy, uh, you know, laugh track, that was the big thing. And you put in a laugh track, you film in front of a live studio audience and use a laugh track to enhance. And the laugh track was awkward. It didn't sound right. It didn't sound sincere. It was very obvious it was a laugh track and not the actual audience. And it was just strange. So like imagine a Sorkin movie. If you've ever seen a Sorkin movie, imagine a laugh track thrown in there. It's just a bit strange. And so the laugh track was used less and less throughout the first season until the end when it was fully taken out. And then after that, he got one more season for Sports Night. And that was season two. And then after two seasons, it ended, unfortunately. And he was starting to run out of ideas. Now, after uh, A Few Good Men, he had made two movies. He had written two movies. And one of them was called The American President, which was... A uh, big critical hit that kind of flew under a lot of people's radar. And while he was writing The American President, he got to do a background tour at, at the White House and talk to a lot of people that worked there. And he went to do a meeting after Sports Night kind of failed. Yeah. F- critical success, sort of two seasons is kind of a failure in TV, unless they're two, unless it's a limited series. And so he took this idea that he had, or he, he didn't even, he's been toying with it and he went to a meeting and he wasn't really prepared. So he didn't know what he was going to use. He didn't have a lot to say. So he came up with the idea of based on his experience of touring while writing the American president, he came up with what's called the West wing. Mm. And it was about the people who work in the white house who work for the president, like the behind the scenes staff. And as the show got made, there was a pilot it got picked up a lot of big actors in it. And it was huge. Huge hit. People loved The West Wing. He wrote four seasons of it. He wrote almost every single episode in those four seasons, which is massive for anyone to do, especially considering how dialogue heavy it was and how much he had to crank out. It was typically behind schedule, uh, over budget, because of how much he was just rewriting and changing all the time because he had huge control over the writing process. And he was also going through a huge drug habit. So he was a huge cokehead, which would explain how he was able to crank out so many pages. I mean, he would just rip a line and just type out 40 pages in a night, you know, insanity. And uh, he eventually got busted and had to go to rehab. And that was an issue. And then the producers wanted to take a lot of control away from him. So after four seasons on the West Wing, he and the main producer left and they continued to make a few more seasons without him. And he went and he did another show 
called Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, which was about uh, an SNL type of sketch show behind the scenes. Add Matthew Perry, and that was another critical success, but it only got one season, which was unfortunate. It just didn't live up to... People liked the first episode. It got 12 million views, which was huge at the time. And then about halfway through the season, it just sort of died out, and then the show itself just sort of fell off people's radar, and it did not get renewed for more than one season. Then after Studio 60, he returned to movies, and he wrote things like Charlie Wilson's War, The Social Network, Moneyball, Steve Jobs, Bali's Game, and The Trial of Chicago 7. And during all the time, he dipped back into the TV show game with a show called The Newsroom at HBO, which was a very big success with Jeff Daniels, and he was nominated for a couple of Golden Globes, a couple Emmys. I got a lot of attention. That lasted three seasons, which is longer than most of the shows except for The West Wing. And he's had a lot of major success as a writer, mostly. He won an Oscar for The Social Network, and he was nominated for uh, Moneyball and Molly's Game, and now Trial of Chicago 7. So he's a big-time writer, he's written plays, movies, TVs, has a very specific style, and that's why we want to talk about him. He's a great inspiration to the writing community, a great inspiration to us as writers, and just a unique style, unique style of dialogue, unique style of... Uh, storytelling in terms of the way he connects arcs so it's really important that we talk about him exactly you want to learn from the best when it comes to writing you're gonna have to learn from sorkin and so he's got some major themes in a very distinctive style and so we want to also cover some of those probably the most prominent styles or the most prominent part of his style is his dialogue Mm -hmm. it's witty it's fast-paced he often likes to have it combined with walking. So the walk and talks that he popularized on West Wing, they've been a staple of really all of his his work. So that is a key element. He also likes to focus on these passionate and driven characters. And oftentimes they are idealistic, or if not, the story as a whole is this idealistic, romanticized, aspirational story. Mm. He loves framing devices. He likes to structure things around a particular setting he'll often do like with west wing newsroom workplaces and then Mm -hmm. of course in a few good men and things like social network and trial the chicago seven courtroom dramas he just likes framing these around um, areas and settings that produce a lot of inherent tension and give a lot of room for conflict so he loves doing that he also has an affinity for father-daughter stories which makes sense because he is a father to a daughter, so he includes that in a lot of his work. And he also, this is sort of an interesting thing that has evolved over his career, is he has this focus on nonfiction stories. So based on some of the things you mentioned, right, Sports Night, West Wing, mm-hmm. American President, Fugaman, those are all worlds he created. They're obviously based off real life things, but it's all fictional characters and fictional stories mm-hmm. later on in his career with his most recent Oscar nominated flick, try the Chicago seven things like social network, Steve jobs, some of the films that we're going to be digging into later on. These are all based on either real people or real events. And I just think that's an interesting sort of turn that he's had in his creative, in his career. Um, is focusing on these nonfiction stories. And he's gotten a lot of flack for that at times because he loves to take 
creative liberties with these stories. He's not entirely loyal to the real things that happened. Mm. And the philosophy he has for it is that each of these stories that he tells about these real people, about the real people or the real events, should be seen as a painting and not a photograph. So that there should be an expectation of a subjective authorial voice as opposed to some sort of authoritative objective recounting of real history right which makes sense because he's a storyteller and a very effective one at that so he's trying to make the most entertaining and engrossing story possible and so sometimes taking those creative liberties is how you get there and so i just think that was an interesting another interesting part of his sort of writing philosophy and his approach and during barry sandler who's a professor at ucf he's Mm -hmm. a screenwriter great guy um but during our class this past week the writer writers guild of america was doing a panel featuring the nominees for the wga awards and of course nominated in the original screenplay one was sorkin and so we got to see him and some of the others answer questions and one of the things that came up with trial of the chicago seven is he took creative liberties with that story and some people were not fans of it or at least they were just questioning whether or not he should have been more faithful to the real things and so he gave that little spiel there about he's trying to capture the truth of either the real individual Steve Jobs, or the truth of the event, the riot and the trial of the Chicago 7, as opposed to strictly being accurate to the reality of what happened. So that was another interesting component of that discussion there. Um, And then he also talked a lot about his, the way he got started in his career with A Few Good Men, um, and finally developing into the writer of Chicago, the trial seven or what trial, the Chicago trial seven. Of Chicago seven. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that is an interesting take on Sorkin's distinctive style. Um, he also loves to think about stories as intentions and obstacles, which is a core writing tenet. Um, but it's interesting to hear someone as accomplished as him also give off the, the same advice that we kind of hear in our writing classes or in videos that we'll watch um, as we're trying to learn more about being writers. And he his writing process doesn't involve fully outlined scripts, which I don't know about you, Dylan, but for me, I love an outline. I think it helps a lot to just have that structure and know where I'm going and have it laid out because I kind of like to have control in that way, like to be planned out. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't do that he doesn't fully outline it he considers it the writing process like carrying a flashlight in the dark so you can only see so much ahead of you you don't know really how it's going to Mm -hmm. end up but that's part of what makes it fun and exciting for him how about you does that vibe with your writing process yeah as a writer i'm more of the sorkin style where it's i don't outline as much as others do i like to keep it in my head for the most part just because that keeps me thinking and that keeps me 
going back to all the time. I like to think while I'm driving. So when I'm driving, I'll think about uh, story ideas and I go over and over and over and over again to make sure it stays in my long-term memory and I don't forget them. And that makes me think about the story itself, which makes me develop new ideas while I think. So I kind of like that process. I don't know if I agree with him with it's like a flashlight in the dark because that's not how I would like to approach writing as just kind of finding new things. I think of it more like uh, trying to write to the point where the pencil or the keyboard is typing just on its own at a certain point so that you're no longer you like you like setting up the story. You can set up a story and you can do that on your own. But at a certain point, you should get somewhere where it's no longer your thoughts. It's no longer an outline. It's just how the story goes. It's just how the pencil writes. It's just how it ends up. And it's less uh, your process and just how things line up and go. And then, of course, you can go back and edit and change and rewrite, which is always encouraged just to make it better, make it tighter. That's how I usually like to write. Awesome. But yeah, that's a cool thing about Sorkin's little process there. He also notes that the dialogue for him comes at the end in the story. Mm. So he does like to focus on, okay, what's the structure here? And then what's the key character that I'm trying to explore, the intentions and obstacles that is going on in that character's life. And then the dialogue comes in at the end. But certainly, as we all know, it's his favorite part of writing. And I think what most people love about him and his style is that dialogue. He often compares it to music, saying that just the sound of dialogue has a musicality to it, which came from his love of plays early on. Whenever he was, his like parents took him to Broadway shows when he was a young kid, he didn't understand what was happening, but he loved the sound of it. Um, and that, I guess, got really ingrained. And then so as a writer, it was just able to come out in his dialogue that really snappy witty mm -hmm. back and forth the way it sizzles on mm -hmm. the screen man yeah and the banters too um so certainly that is the most well-known part of sorkin's writing and for good reason i mean the dialogue is just incredible mm -hmm. dialogue is probably what i struggle with the most as a writer so i look up to sorkin a lot in that aspect just cramming out not only realistic dialogue but beyond realistic and so it fits the story world is what i mean you know like he's not trying to write like how two people actually would have a conversation he's trying to write how the two characters would have a conversation realistically if the characters were real people but movie characters are rarely real people even if you know he's writing about steve jobs or mark zuckerberg mark zuckerberg who were real people the characters that he's putting, like you said, are a painting, not a photograph. They're not the real people. They're the interpretations of the people within the story that he's creating. And he's fitting the dialogue to match that. So it creates a sort of cohesive style within this dialogue that I'm always trying to search for beyond just realistic dialogue. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. Because, yeah, his stories and his characters tend to be idealistic. They tend to be just extremely smart, witty. So mm -hmm. each thing that they say should be a representation of their character and so it follows that everything they say should be accompanied by that wit um in that incisive sort of argument style or rhetoric that he really has again in all his work which makes it so entertaining to watch and for us as writers a great way to learn more about our craft mm -hmm. of course now, like I mentioned earlier, in the 1980s, 
Sorkin wrote. Uh, it was his third play. It was his first big breakthrough, A Few Good Men, which is about uh, two soldiers haze and accidentally kill a fellow Marine in Guantanamo Bay. And Tom, or not Tom Cruise, but the character Tom Cruise plays in the movie is assigned to defend the two Marines because they were, quote, acting under orders and that it was a code red ordered by the uh, colonel of Guantanamo Bay. And so it's more about like determining military processes and just trying to create a good courtroom drama. Now, what's important about this play is that is the way it was created. Now, Sorkin's brother and his sister are both lawyers. And at the time when he was, after he'd written his first two movies, plays, sorry, he written his first two plays, he got a call while he was working at a restaurant from his sister, who had just recently started working at the JAG, which is the courtroom for, or the courts for the military people, essentially. If you ever seen this show, JAG, it's based on that. So she came to him and told him about a story that she was representing two Marines who had almost killed a fellow Marine acting on orders to haze the individual. And he thought that that was interesting and he wanted to incorporate that into a play. So he wrote it down on cocktail napkins while he was working and then he would take it back after working and then he'd type it into his computer that he and his roommates had gotten together. And that's how he came up with the play. Now, the play was so successful and so well adored that he got film options from producers in Hollywood and they optioned the film and bought the rights and they got Rob Reiner who was an actor for Family Matters he was in Family Matters no yes all in the family all in the family I don't remember he was a famous actor from an old TV show in the 70s and he had gone on to make a lot of movies Uh, this is Spinal Tap The Princess Bride Stamp by Me Misery and then his next movie was going to be A Few Good Men. And he cast Tom Cruise in the lead role, Jack Nicholson as the colonel, and Demi Moore as the uh, other court lawyer that was working with Tom Cruise. And what's really interesting about this movie is that it's Aaron Sorkin's first movie they ever wrote. It really started his career transitioning from plays into movies and TV. And it really taught him a lot about how to write a good movie. He learned the process of making movies, starting to do this. So I would say it's a pretty important thing to look at when you're talking about Aaron Sorkin. It's one of my favorites that he's made, and a lot of that, his dialogue is snappy, and it's a lot of his style that he usually does, but a lot of it has to do with Rob Reiner, the way he directed it, the way he edited it, him and the editor, and I just think a lot of that came together really well. It's a lot like, you can see a lot of Sorkin's style coming through in this movie that sets up his style later. So the dialogue isn't the snappiest, it's not the quickest, but it's certainly working its way up there. And the storyline, there's a lot of flashbacks that aren't explicitly told as flashbacks, it just it's non-linear, which sort of comes up again later in his writing, which we'll get to with things like The Social Network. So it sort of sets up a lot of that. And characters, the way he writes these characters, he gives them fully fleshed out beginnings and ends with Tom Cruise's character, Jack Nicholson's character, Demi Moore's character. They're all set up really well in the beginning, and then they have a full arc that comes to a really great conclusion at the end in one big scene. So I think it's a really good stepping stone for Sorkin to start with this kind of a movie, a courtroom drama, where there's a lot of dialogue, there's a lot of great quotes, a lot of great lines, and a lot of great themes that are at play with military, uh, following orders blindly, 
military codes, military regulations, and courtrooms. Courtroom drama is always interesting. Always interesting. I love courtroom dramas. And so I think this was a good thing for him to start off with. And then after this, he went, of course, into TV, which really helped step up his dialogue game, especially West Wing, which Ryan will talk about in a second. And it just really, it's like a stepping stone for Sorkin. He starts with here, with plays, graduates to movies with a few good men, makes a couple more movies that are sort of critically acclaimed, graduates to TV, where he gets to have a lot more, not a lot more, but some creative freedom, tell stories he wants to tell and develop his craft, then steps up again into bigger movies where he's really honed in his craft and he can sell it to the audience. So after A Few Good Men and a couple more movies, he went and did The West Wing, which Ryan yes. is a huge fan of. Yes. Ryan, tell me about The West Wing. I'm not going to say too much about it because I'm telling you, Dylan, one of these days you're going to watch this show and we're going to have a whole episode dedicated to The West Wing because it deserves it. it. But just to share why I love it so much and why you all should try to watch it is it's just so good. I mean, everything that you could possibly adore about Sorkin and his style is present in the West Wing. Like you mentioned early on, the man wrote every single episode for four seasons. That's insane. And so it's, I mean, in terms of Sorkin at his most Sorkinese, the West Wing is where it's at. Uh, And so I love the show because it also is the pinnacle of his idealistic sort of aspirational view on the world and particularly with politics. And it's just so amazing. It has these principled, disciplined characters who are whip smart, hardworking, doing their best to bring about the change that they believe in, which is a great thing to think about in your government. Sorkin clearly does see the best in that, and I like to as well. I like to believe that the people populating our government actually respect the responsibility they have and see it as an honor and that they do their best to serve at the pleasure of the people. That's a little line that comes up in the West Wing a lot. Um, And to do everything in their power to create the most opportunities for the most people to have the most happiness. That is the heart of this show. And so it's beautiful to play out. Some people call it a fantasy. And when you compare it to real world politics, it can seem like that. But even then, it's still a great thing to see. And I'm also a political junkie. I just like it. Maybe it's that storytelling side of me because politics and politicking has this innate tension and conflict in it. Like you mentioned with courtroom dramas, that also Mm. has very clear stakes, very clear goals, and very clear sides that are pitted against each other so this show has a it works with that a lot um is able to capitalize on its premise so in that sense it's also another plus for me and then it also just has incredible characters which is a testament to both the writing and to the cast i mean you got martin sheen you Mm -hmm. got alice and janet you got bradley whifford you had rob lowe john spencer Julia Hill, Rob Schiff. I mean, these great, incredible actors populating an ensemble ensemble that just has chemistry that's so magnetic. It works so incredibly well. And then each of the characters, I mean, they're able to, 
develop into their own distinctive styles, which is another incredible thing, given that, I mean, he had a writing team with him, of course, but Sorkin is really writing most of the dialogue that goes into it. He's crafting each of the stories for each episode, but each character is able to shine in their own ways. I mean, you have some characters that are dealing with PTSD, and mm-hmm. there's a whole episode dedicated to that. You have one that deals with addiction, which certainly is um, given some authenticity with Sorkin's real life. Yeah, One character has their father is suffering from dementia, and so they have to wrestle with this internal conflict of staying at a job where they have immense influence and where they can affect the lives of hundreds of millions of people every day just by going to work and then or going and taking care of their father who becomes more unrecognizable by the day like those sort of interesting deep conflicts for these characters that you wouldn't expect just from a show that deals with politics which it definitely Mm -hmm. does deal with dense politics Um, and sometimes you're not going to know what they're saying half the time but it still sounds beautiful (laughs) that's the musicality of Sorkin's dialogue Um, it'll still keep you invested even if you don't know exactly what's going on. Um, But if you do know part of what's going on, it makes it even that much better. Um, And then the depth to the main man, President Jed Bartlett, Martin Sheen, he was in that American President movie as the chief of staff. A man got promoted to president in this show. Mm -hmm. And he is just fantastic. Top three presidents all time for sure. (laughs) Um, and again the depth you get to see there because he sets I mean talk about the principled well-meaning well-intentioned individual doing their best to you know support the American people to represent their interests but he also has these human weaknesses and human flaws like the man (laughs) will sneak cigarettes every couple episodes he's a sort of a chain smoker um, which is funny because his administration targets the um, tobacco industry in one of the episodes, and the press secretary announces, yeah, the president hasn't smoked in a couple years. And then even after that point, you still see him trying to sneak some here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another one where he has multiple sclerosis, MS, and he doesn't tell any of his staff, doesn't tell the American people. And he got elected on that. It wasn't necessarily a lie, but he didn't divulge that personal medical history and so he has to wrestle with his internal conflict of now do i have a responsibility to air out my own laundry to the american people or am i able to have some things to myself even though i'm the highest public servant around things like that are just gosh they're so they make you connect with the character so much and it yeah is truly riveting and emotional in every way also so many incredible lines of dialogue he definitely honed that craft like this is where it happened this mm-hmm. is where he really reached the peak of sorkin dialogue as you know it um you <laughs> i don't know if you remember that one time we were at your house and you were watching this random tiktok that had bartlett saying something or he was like chewing out this anti-homosexual yeah, yeah personality yeah. person yeah i know that um, yeah who she uses the bible as justification for it and bartlett this is another testament to the depth he has here um so it's a democratic administration so we're getting liberal politics um 
But despite that, Bartlett is a devout Catholic. And yet when he's confronted by this Christian who's using the Bible to justify their hate, he is using the Bible to showcase how absurd that is, pointing out some of the things that are excused in a way. Like, Mm -hmm. if someone works on the Sabbath, you can kill them. Like, that's what it says in the Bible. So he was like, should I do that if my chief of staff comes in on a Sunday? Um, And then he gets to the point where, because she's sitting down this whole time, and he's up speaking. And so he gets to the point where he's like, by the way, this is the White House. And in these halls, when the president walks into a room, everybody stands or something like that to just hit that final nail in and then Mm -hmm. of course everyone watches as she has to (laughs) muster up her little courage to stand so things like that i mean just incredible dialogue incredible takedowns one quote from sam seaborn about space which was always stuck in my mind because they were arguing why do we need funding for mars when we have problems at home and he goes into this whole spiel about we come out of the cave we went across the land, we went across the sea, we went into the sky, we finally went into space, into moon, and Mars is what's next. The history of man is hung on a timeline of exploration, and this is what's next. And that's what I'm saying. Great, Elon man. Musk, NASA, meet me after class as we talk <laughs> about why we haven't gone to Mars, because we need to. But anyway, things like that. It's just incredible. This show had me fist-pumping over a man putting his hands in his pockets. I mean, if that doesn't give you an idea of the caliber of writing in the show and how Sorkin is just on point throughout it, I don't know what does. A simple gesture like that had me shadow boxing the air. It's brilliant. Mm-hmm. You got to watch it. I remember when we were at Mason's house and we were talking about the scene where the president is coming back from China, I think, and they're trying to figure out what time the plane lands because of the time <laughs> and change. i still don't know and we're trying it... to do the math like they're trying to do the math and they can't figure it out and we couldn't figure it out it's so funny which by the way another great line from josh lyman played by bradley Whitford. he was like he's gone 150 hours how is it thursday the whole time and that's how i felt how 13 hours if he crosses the international dateline i don't understand it oh, yeah time difference is crazy but after the West Wing, he wrote a couple more TV shows. He worked on some other scripts for Hollywood, just adding in lines here and there. He added a couple of lines to The Rock with uh, Sean Connery and Nick Cage, just a couple quotes and things. And then he made a movie called Charlie Wilson's War with Tom Hanks, Julia Roberts, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. And then upped his game with our classic movie of the week for this week, The Social Network in 2010. Directed by David Fincher and starring Jesse Eisenberg, Andrew Garfield, and Justin Timberlake. For me, this is like peak Sorkin movie writing is The Social Network. Like everything you need to know about what the movie is going to be is given to you right in the first scene with Jesse Eisenberg and who was it, Rooney Mara? Yep. Rooney Mara in the bar. They're dating. They're having dialogue back and forth. And you know everything you need to know about Mark Zuckerberg in that moment. You know everything. That's what I think is most interesting about his characters is everything you need to know about the character you're given immediately in the first scene they appear in. You know exactly what they're going to be like for the rest of the movie. You know exactly what their base character traits are. And the rest of the movie is just watching their character arc change depending like as a result of the way they are as characters. 
which is so interesting to me, you know. In the first scene, you see Jesse Eisenberg, and he's all over the place in the conversation. He's going back and forth on topics. His mind is working faster than his mouth is. He's arrogant, and he's uh, condescending to his girlfriend, who he thinks he's better than because he goes to Harvard and she doesn't. He's making assumptions. He and he's brilliant too. Like he's a genius, and you know he's a genius. And he's constantly thinking about life as a chess game, moving pieces here and there. And you see his girlfriend, and she's very clearly trying to live in the moment. And she's—I mean, there's not a lot of her in the movie, but you can tell that her character is very much just trying to stay where she is and not involved in sort of his style of self-absorption. So you kind of get an idea of what their characters are like. And Andrew Garfield, when he first shows up as Eduardo Saverin, he's very much protective of Mark Zuckerberg, and he's very much very much presented as his best friend. And he's also shown as sort of a very cautious person who tries to think things through and thinks practically, but at the same time is willing to let down those defenses for Mark when he gives the algorithm so that Mark can create uh, the the program that lets you compare women at harvard uh what is it called facemash.com so he's very much willing to let down his guard let down his security and his caution to help mark which comes back to bite him in the ass later in the movie if you watch it it's just very great character arcs that he's setting up very great character uh personalities that he's setting up that are going to carry throughout the movie as the characters change and develop which is a really great right way to write characters really great way for us to interpret characters of the audience, I think he does a really good job in the social network specifically, and I think this is his best movie that he's written. I don't know about thing in general. I haven't seen The West Wing. I haven't seen any of his other TV shows or his plays, but I think his best movie is The Social Network, which is why is our movie of the week. For sure. Yeah, I 100% agree with your analysis there. Definitely, again, that opening scene is just the perfect case study for writers to learn. Um, because like you said, everything about the character is displayed through the dialogue. And you hear a lot like actions should display dialogue with, or should display the character, which it should. But Sorkin is able to use dialogue to showcase the character as well. And like you said, we get to see the egotistical side of Mark and the insecure qualities he mm-hmm. has. Like when she's like, that's it, I'm breaking up with you. And he immediately tries to go like, oh, is this a joke? Stop, wait, I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see him try and do that. It also immediately sets up his intention right his main goal or at least at that point was to get into a final club um and so you get to see that pop in like you said he was all over the place there's these sorkin does this a lot where he has his characters misunderstand each other and he does that intentionally to not only make the dialogue more interesting to add a rhythmic layer to it but then also to feed us a little bit of exposition or to feed us character um, and one line he has from Rudy Mara's character is a great, it sort of encapsulates this, is she says, you say two things at once, I'm not sure which I'm supposed to be aiming at. Because mm-hmm. that's him going back and forth between mentioning the SATs in China, and then mentioning Rowing Crew, and then Finals Club, and then Harvard versus BU. So that really encapsulates the entirety of that conversation and how it explores the Zucks character. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also, another interesting part of the social network that speaks to Sorkin style is the way that this story isn't about the creation of Facebook. 
that's part of it that's present in it, but it's really about the breakdown of a friendship between Eduardo and Mark. And the way that Sorkin structures this, right, again, his little framing devices, is he interweaves the flashbacks of when they're creating Facebook, starting with, right, that breakup that led him to making that nasty post and then leading to him making the face mash thing. Um, he interweaves that with the two lawsuits mm-hmm. that are being filed against Zuckerberg, one from Eduardo and one from the Winklevosses, um, yeah. trying to get um, recognition and some monetary compensation for their role in creating Facebook. But yeah, that's another key element of Sorkin's style, and it works so well in the social network. It keeps everything extremely compelling, and you sort of see this Mm. unraveling of the friendship, and he juxtaposes some of the things that we see happening with some of the things that are being explained in the courtroom, and you see how there's just these wildly different points of view that the people have. They're all sort of unreliable narrators. Mm -hmm. You get to see how even that in itself is a way to express um, and to recontextualize the characters in the flashbacks and what they're really feeling and what they're really thinking during that time. It's just, it really is brilliant. I mean, there's so many different threads that he has flung out during this film Mm -hmm. and he ties it all together in really astounding ways. And what's so wonderful putting dialogue aside and going to that story structure you're talking about is a lot of movies will do flash forwards or flashbacks just to tell a bit of a story, but he's so committed to just pure nonlinear timelines that the flash forwards and flashbacks are not used as just an explanatory device. It's used to take the audience into a new point in time in the story world. So he'll be telling a story and then that story will be told. It'll flash forward to the lawsuit and it'll be revealed that that's what's happening. He's retelling the story and then another story will come up in the lawsuit and that will take you back to where the story world. And it's a really creative way of sort of covering several years at a time without uh, being too overly long, like a three hour, four hour movie covering in a short amount of time and being able to stick to the important parts rather than trying to tell everything at once. And that allowing you to stick to the important parts lets you focus more on the characters rather than uh, explanatory devices, like explaining what's happening. It allows him to just jump back and forth, which is really important for how the story is told. And I just really love the way that the non-linear timeline has worked out in this movie. For sure. All right. So as a fun little game, Dylan, what are some of your favorite lines of dialogue from the social network before we move on? I love in the beginning when Rooney Mara's character gets up to leave and she says, I want you to know, Mark, that you're going to date a lot of women. You're going to, and a lot of women are going to reject you. And you're going to think it's because you're a nerd. And I need you to know that it's not. It's because you're an asshole. And then she leaves. And that's a great line. Ugh. It is. It's, it's, it relates so much to to not only his relationship with women, which is a whole other thing, but his relationship with Andrew Garfield's character. That he he thinks that Andrew Garfield thinks he's better than him because he's getting into the finals club and Mark isn't. And Mark thinks it's because he's a nerd, which is really subtle in the way that they interact. And it's not a huge thing that is overtly present in a lot of scenes but it's definitely there in the subtext and it relates a lot to his character that he thinks that he's the nerd that didn't get into the finals club and like it's his revenge but it's not it's because he's an asshole 
So it really just sets up the whole story right there in that one scene. Exactly. Opening, yes. Great. So yeah, definitely a fantastic line of dialogue there. A couple of mine is and they're not I mean that again, I mean that's really just the essence of the entire story encapsulated in one little line. Um these are just snarky little comments that are the witticisms of Sorkin that are so really good. One is from Mark when he was arguing with the Wing of Osses and he's like, Yo, if you were the inventors of Facebook, you'd have invented Facebook. Which also I mean that speaks so well to his his character and the way that he's so self centered and egotistical that he truly he can't even recognize the contributions that they could have made to Mark ending up inventing Facebook. Mm-hmm. He sees it as his own lone accomplishment. Um, this other one from the wing, one of the Winkle bosses. I'm six five, two twenty, and there's two of me. <laughs> and that's, that's in reference <laughs> to to them wanting to beat up Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's. I mean, that's just good. And then I like standing next to you, Sean. It makes me feel so tough, which is what Andrew Garfield did towards the end during this little confrontation that happens. Mm-hmm. And that. The, I mean, every bit of that scene from the acting, cinematography, the directing, and the writing was incredible. But that line I loved particularly for Andrew Garfield's delivery in it. The face he makes and the way it's this smug sort of send off, it was really, I just loved it. Mm-hmm. And I love in the end, like the very final scene when Rashida Jones is talking to him. And the last thing she says is, You're not an asshole, Mark what you're trying so hard to be. And then she runs out of the room real quick before you can say anything. <laughs> That's a great line. And also when he's in the lawsuit with the Winklevoss twins and he's like, you have the minimum of my attention. Yes. Another good one. Yeah. Great lines that just like showcase his egotistical nature in the character. Great lines. Yeah. All right. So moving on, do you want to just give your quick opinions on Moneyball? You saw that I haven't yet seen it, but yeah, Moneyball is directed by Bennett Miller and it's starring Brad Pitt, Robin Wright, Jonah Hill, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. And uh, what's notable about Moneyball is that uh, Aaron Sorkin did not write it all on his own. He co-wrote it with Stephen Zayan and Stan Chervin helped with the story. So Moneyball is a lot about um, the statistical nature that went into baseball or like in the 2000s when statistical analysis became the forefront of deciding which players would go to which teams. Uh, there's a lot of great quotes in it from Brad Pitt's character and Jonah Hill's character about statistics and using that to determine which players do what, because at the end of the game, at the, at the end of the day, baseball is all about getting runs, getting in points, getting on to base. It's not about showboating. It's not about trying to hit home runs and bringing in people. If you want to win the game, it's about getting on base. It's about getting in home, like getting in runs, getting in points. That's how you win the game. And you can use stats to determine that. And that's what the movie's about. And I really like the way the story's told. I think there's just a little bit of Sorkin's dialogue. It's not a lot, not as intense as the West Wing or Social Network, but it's there. Uh, Like when Brad Pitt's talking about like, you know, there's good teams, there's bad teams, there's mediocre teams, there's 50 feet of crap, and then there's us. You know, there's great lines like that. Uh, there's a lot of Stephen Zane's writing coming through as well, where it's more about the story and the action than the dialogue. So the dialogue does take a back seat to the story compared to a lot of other Aaron Sorkin works because he didn't write this alone. But 
I liked Moneyball. I think it's a good movie. There's a lot of good performances, a lot of good writing. It's one of the better sports movies. I suggest it. All right. I'll definitely have to get around to that because mm -hmm. I'm certainly in a Sorkin mood. And so I love to explore more of his work, especially the good ones. So yeah, Moneyball is definitely going on my to-watch list. Yeah, I might rewatch Moneyball soon. I really want to. All right. His next movie, or at least the one that we're going to be mentioning here, is Steve Jobs, which another movie that really encapsulates his love mm -hmm. for framing devices and having this unique structure. It's a, well, not really a biopic, but it's a nonfiction movie on Steve Jobs, but it isn't told as a typical cradle-to-grave story, as most biopics are. It's in three real-time acts, each centered around a product launch presentation that Steve Jobs is about to give. And so you see the 30 to 40-ish minutes right before he goes out on stage. Uh, and then he has these arguments with five key figures in his life, Joanna, Steve Wozniak, John Scully, Andy Hertzfeld, and Lisa, his daughter. And so you get to really learn mo more about the character. And this has been described as an action movie composed entirely of dialogue, um, mm -hmm. which is honestly a great way to describe it because it is really fueled by this yeah. sense of it's adrenaline. His most, it's his most dialogue-heavy movie. Like, of all the things he's done, This there's just it's all scenes of people talking. There's such little action it's it's like three acts of just pure conversation which i think is fantastic yeah and so again you get to learn more about his character and who he is this sort of bullheaded perfectionist control freak who certainly is a genius visionary um, but someone who is so stubborn and stuck in his ways that it causes hurt or at least a lot of tension and conflict with the people around him and so you see that come out in his discussions with each of those five key figures um, and it builds towards him finally seeing a bit uh, of how he can be wrong and the possibility that he's not always right all the time mm -hmm. so another strong character arc that Sorkin has here and then another really effective framing device that he uses with the structure of those three acts of the project launches which I think were of the Macintosh, the Next, and the iMac. I think you're right in saying that, yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so again, really unique and creative ways of doing those things. And of course, his dialogue is still incredible. Um, but what about this film uh, sticks out to you, Dylan? Just the dialogue, again, is just so natural in the moment, but not super realistic. Like, it's just definitely the characters talking. It's like the performances are great and the performances carry a lot of weight, of course. But the dialogue itself is really the characters speaking rather than an actor speaking as the character. And they're just such a such full bodied dialogue. And it's just so beautifully written. And I love the idea of taking a three act structure and clearly defining it with three different time periods. And just instead of looking at Steve Jobs as his whole life over a long course of time, like Jobs did with, uh, uh, what's his name, Ashton Kutcher. This one just took three points in Steve Jobs' life that were huge defining moments for his career, and they just 
zoomed in on those three specific moments and showed where he was as a person at those three moments and where he was in his relationships with the people around him. I think that's super. It also like in these three moments, it also just tells Steve Jobs story like through dialogue. Like there's an explanatory moments where you see where Steve Jobs has come from, what Steve Jobs has done and where Steve Jobs is going. So you just kind of like see his whole life in these three segments through dialogue and some flashbacks. There's some moments where it'll cut back for a scene or two or a shot or two just to like add in directorial gravitas, I guess. But the main focus is these three moments in his life, which I think is a super interesting way to look at a person and look at his career. And I just really love the way it all comes together. There's great lines always, of course. And I just huge fan of this movie. Huge fan. For sure. Me too. I really liked it. I also kind of want to rewatch this one soon because I didn't mm-hmm. get around to rewatching this one in preparation for this episode. But when I first watched it, yeah, that, that framing device and the way that is used to help really structure his character arc and you get to see him at three different points in his life and see the very clear evolution that he has really stuck out to me back then um and this also prominently features that theme of fathers and daughters where in this story steve jobs initially rejects lisa his daughter and really i mean just a despicable way i mean the first act you just end up really despising steve jobs Mm -hmm. it's Um, brutal yeah and then you get to see that change over the course of the film which is amazing that sorkin is able to do that i mean you still realize in the final act like he's still stubborn with the conversation that he has with wozniak where woz wants him to recognize the apple ii team give recognition to somebody else that isn't you show that you understand that you're not the only thing that makes any Apple product successful and Steve Jobs Mm -hmm. just won't do it. And that's still an incredibly selfish thing to do. Um, And you're like, yeah, not all parts of them have changed, but you do get to see that relationship with his daughter Mm -hmm. change and you hate him less by the end of the film, or at least for that particular reason, you don't hate him for that as much. Um, which is another interesting thing Sorkin does with these, because typically, right, he operates with the idealistic characters, so it's easy to empathize with a Jed Bartlett, but someone like Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs, where they're somewhat of an anti-hero, Sorkin still has to find these ways to make you identify with them, and the way that he goes about that in his writing process is for him, and this is also something Barry brings up a lot in our class where you can't judge the character that you're writing you have to be able to defend them and the way Sorkin puts it is you have to write them like they're making their case to god why they should be let into heaven mm-hmm. yeah. which i thought is just that is one of those pieces of writing advice that is always going to stick with me i love mm-hmm. the way you phrase that there i also love uh there's a scene in steve jobs where i think it's the second act i think it's the second act and Steve Jobs is talking to Steve Wozniak, and Steve Wozniak is showing off his watch that he has, the new watch, and it's <laughs> yeah. and it's it's horrible looking. It's super bulbous, but it's got a lot of cool features. Like he can tap on it with a pen, and he can like has a calendar. It's like an Apple Watch, like the earliest version of the Apple Watch, and it just looks horrid looking. And Steve Jobs is just like, "Do you go to the airport with that?" And he's like, "Yeah." And he's like, "Excuse me, sir. This man has a bomb on his wrist." 
Like, it's just such a clear representation that Steve Wozniak is a brilliant person and he thinks so in-depthly about how technology will work, but he doesn't put in the thought of the the business-like applications of that technology and the, the marketability of it, which is what Steve Jobs was known for. He could take a product and he could sell it like crazy. And that's why he was such a genius. It just shows like the stark difference in their character over like a funny dialogue that isn't expositional. And I think that's just brilliant. For sure. It's such a strong indicator of showing a character through dialogue rather than action, which you're supposed to do normally is show it through action. But showing character through dialogue is so hard to do genuinely without just being expositional and having a character explain his feelings, which is not compelling. This is such a good example of taking a character, boiling him down to his essence, putting in a funny anecdote rather than exposition, and presenting that to the audience so that the, char- so that the audience can understand the character very easily. Exactly. That's why Sorkin's the master. Brilliant. All right, Brilliant so dialogue. what about your favorite lines other than that one? Because that was genuinely funny. Um, but yeah, so favorite lines in Steve Jobs. When he says, you had three weeks, the universe was created in a third of that time. Great line. And the, well, the follow-up to that. So Steve Jobs is, because again, this is sort of speaking to, he doesn't know the technical side of it. Um, but he's arguing with, I think it was Scully, and it was in the like first act, but he was like, fix it. Get this done. Um, and he's like, it's broken. We can't just do it in what twenty minutes or whatever. He's like, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. you had three weeks. The universe was created in a third of that time, and the reply was, "And one day you'll have to tell us how you did it." <laughs> so good. Again, on their own, they're just brilliant. But then that combination, impeccable. Um, so that one was great. And then a couple of the lines from that Wozniak versus Steve Jobs in the third act there, where he wanted him to recognize the Apple II team. Um, Woz said i'm tired of being ringo when i know it's john <laughs> and jobs just looks to the side and he's like well, everyone loves ringo Another so great, funny <laughs> the way that he's just callous in a humorous sort of way uh a great line there and then another line from Waz later on is it's not binary you can be decent and gifted at the same time which speaks to really a theme of great lines, both this movie and then Zuckerberg, right? They're great men who have undoubtedly mm-hmm. changed the world, but they were really quite scummy in their personal lives for a big portion of their lives. So, mm-hmm. I think it's interesting to see that the co- a big common similarity in all of Aaron Sorkin's works is that he has these great performances that lift up the dialogue and the dialogue lifting up the performances because he's gotten really lucky into casting these actors who are talented performers that know what to do with this already incredible dialogue and the two sort of enhance one another, which is such a a wonderful thing. I agree. This man, any Sorkin movie, look at the cast and they're fine actors. They're always amazing. Like they get picked well, very well. For sure. Which, I mean, makes sense. I mean, you hear a Sorkin script is going around, and at this point, if you're an actor, you're like, I want on that. Because you know it's mm-hmm. going to be great character, great dialogue, um, and an overall great story. Mm-hmm. Unless, in <laughs> Dylan's case, unless it's the trial of the Chicago 7. So, some background on this. Spielberg initially invited Sorkin to his house in 2006 to pitch the idea of 
a trial of the Chicago 7 movie. And Sorkin wanted to let people know that that is not a common occurrence. Spielberg doesn't normally have him just come over for a house visit. But at that point, it did happen. And Sorkin didn't know what the trial of the Chicago 7 was. I'd never heard of it. But he said yes, and then immediately started researching a movie because he didn't want to bungle up an opportunity to work with Spielberg. And mm-hmm. Sasha Baron Conan was, or Cohen was attached really early on, but for whatever reason, Spielberg wasn't able to end up doing the film. And so it was in this development lingo for a long time until finally Sorkin decided that he was going to direct. And so we now have Trial of Chicago 7 came out in what, October 2020? I have no clue the months all bleed together but Mm -hmm. came out last year and initially got that oscar buzz and now of course we know that it is nominated for sorkin's writing but not his directing and it is nominated for best picture so it was well adored by the critics but for you dylan you didn't seem to enjoy this film even though a lot of his themes and his style his stylistic choices are present in it, right? We have the idealistic characters, especially involved with politics, the framing device of courtrooms, and then it's a nonfiction work, so he takes those creative liberties in order to inject it with some more entertaining, mm-hmm. right, in the dialogue and in the character arcs to just make it a more well-rounded story. But this combination this time around didn't seem to work for you. How come? Um, I don't think Aaron Sorkin is the greatest director already, just starting off the gate. I think he's a capable director. I think he can turn in a film that has a a beginning, middle, end, that's technically well done, that is uh, all in all a movie that can be watched. It's it's capable. He can do it. Kind of like, I don't want to say John Lee Hancock, but he's more creative than John Lee Hancock, but it's pretty close. There's just not a lot of creative decisions being made in the directing style. There's not a lot of uh, like attempts to stand out, to create a unique style in the way the story is told uh, visually. And I think when, this is just a theory, but I think when he directs, he tends to not spend so much time like drooling over the script and reworking and reworking it because pre-production takes a lot out of someone and so there's so much focus on that it's harder to focus on the script and i think the script suffered from it the fact that he was directing it and it's not the worst script in the world there it's it like has its moments and it tells a story relatively well but i don't know it's just not it's my least favorite script of his that i've seen i haven't seen molly's game and i haven't seen charlie wilson's war or his two earlier movies that he made after a few good men but of the ones that i have seen the ones that we've mentioned here this is my least favorite is trial of chicago 7 and a lot of it has to do with the way he tells the story the story structure um it's like he's trying to do the thing he usually does with the flashbacks but he doesn't commit to the non-linear style like he does in the social network which i really liked it's more just we're telling a story and we're going to flash back every once in a while for exposition, then bring it back, show a riot scene, maybe bring it back. And that's not as effective as the story 
structure in the social network where it's using the flashbacks as a way of changing the story time in the audience perception which is how you tell a story in a compelling way rather than an expositional way i think and i think the dialogue is also not as strong as it's usually supposed to be i don't know what lends itself to that maybe it's the way he's capturing the film as a director maybe it's him not putting as much effort into the script as he usually does but the dialogue is not as compelling. Some of it, there are some good lines in it. But it just definitely could have been a lot better than it was. Right. Yeah, I kind of, I feel the same way with some of those things you mentioned. Like the dialogue, there are certainly some standouts. But there was one particular scene with Michael Keaton who was the former attorney mm. general and they're visiting mm-hmm. him to try to get him in as a witness. And it was, it was genuinely bad. Like, it was yeah. not great because they try to have this thing where Eddie Redmayne's character, Tom Hayden was trying to tell him like, yo, you got to have the courage to stand up for what's right. And we know that Michael Keaton obviously is going to do what's right. He just invited the members from the justice department to their meeting just to watch him join the, defendant side um and what was the line it was some something about it i don't know i can't even remember which is not great because usually the sorkin lines will get burned into your brain but that one didn't Mm -hmm. all i remember is just a bad taste in my mouth from watching it so in that sense i can see how some of the dialogue isn't as great throughout but there certainly are some standouts that you have. Um, And it's interesting that the framing for you this time wasn't as effective. I think it, it worked like the very beginning. He started out with intercutting each of the main characters who become the, the eight people on trial because Bobby Seals included, but he Mm -hmm. should not have been there at all. Um, I mean, none of them should have been, but he was, it was certainly absurd for him to be included there, but we see all of those eight characters gearing up to go visit Chicago mm-hmm. for the 1968 Democratic National Convention and trying to do a peaceful protest there, which of course ended up with the riots um, that got them arrested, or as Abby Hoffman mentioned, chosen. We weren't arrested, we were chosen mm-hmm. um, for this political trial. So the framing device for me very early on worked because it was such an energetic introduction to each of the characters. And as they're doing their little spiel, each of them leaves off the last line, which gets picked up by the next character and whatever spiel they're doing, which is just a entertaining way to get us introduced to these characters. It is exposition, but those are one of those moments where he's able to do it in an engrossing way. um, Mm -hmm. As compared to one that's obviously like, Hey, prepare for some exposition. And he does try to layer that out with going back and forth between Abby Hoffman doing stand-up versus the trial team doing preparation versus them being in court. He tries to, and then flashbacks to the actual events going on, like when mm-hmm. the right scenes were happening. So he did each of those to try and spice up the, the structure and to make it feel less like you're about to get an info dump about some of the things happening here and for me it worked i don't think it worked as well as the social network or steve jobs 
the structures for those movies. So I can see why you're like, ah, that didn't really connect with me. Um, but for me, I thought it was able to still keep the story moving forward and keep me involved in what was happening mm-hmm. for the most part. Um, and so I did, I was okay with that choice. Um, and I like that some of the main conflict in the film was this sort of ideological divide between Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman. So that allows Sorkin to do one of the things that I think he does best, which are these rhetorical verbal sparrings between characters. Um, Mm -hmm. And so they're conflicting over how to best advocate for progressivism. And one of them, it's Tom Hayden, who's looking at Abby Hoffman, who's this more, you know, conventionally, when you think of 60s activists, you're going to think of someone like Abby Hoffman. And Tom Hayden's very issue was 50 years from now, people are going to remember you when they think of progressive politics instead of thinking about equality, justice, education, poverty, progress, all those things. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you see the divide there between those two characters, um, which for me was one of the most interesting parts of it. And it definitely reflected, I think, today's times, as did, unfortunately, those riot scenes, which wasn't that one of your highlights of the film? I did like the riot scenes. I thought they were shot and edited well. I know people who didn't like them that much, and I understand why. Like, it's sort of gimmicky to just throw in a riot scene that's shot and edited well and be like, this is the best part of the movie. You know, here's a riot scene. Here is really cool. I liked it. I thought it gave the film a little bit more of a heartbeat, picked it up a little bit in terms of pacing. I didn't like how it was presented, though, that it was characters sitting around in a room and then you know it is a courtroom story so you're asked to recall and then it's they start to recall there's a flashback they show the riot flash forward it's very simple way of telling the story and sometimes it works i just don't think it worked well in this instance it's just it's it's like he he did a lot of research on the trials of chicago 7 he read a lot about the case a lot about the riots and then he tried to put in the important parts and he did the thing that he does where he uh, is sort of writing that's not completely accurate and he tries to do the thing where he's painting rather than t- taking pictures but it really did feel like he was taking pictures that were just inaccurate rather than painting a picture this time mm. it felt more like photography if that's the metaphor he's going to use that he likes to be painting with his words rather than photography of real life and when he's writing nonfiction, it felt more like photography gotcha interesting that for me like those riot scenes themselves were one of the weakest part of the films for me because mm-hmm. i didn't think it was particularly well directed or shot i mean when you mm-hmm. think of a riot scene and the jumbled shaky hand camera quick editing that you're imagining when we say riot scenes i mean that's what it was so nothing was really to stand out about it mm-hmm. um, i thought the intercutting with the things in the courtroom and then like those ways to contextualize what's happening i thought that was fine um but then the actual things we're seeing of the riot i thought were not great especially the i don't know maybe this is him taking a photograph and it's actually what was going down jerry rubin played by jeremy strong who's great in this um Mm. he uh, tries to stop or he does stop a couple of frat boys from 
attacking a woman who's holding a flag. I thought that was yeah pointless. That was, it made it no was sense. If that's real, then okay. But yeah, that should have been one of the times that you take that out because it seemed like you mentioned earlier a gimmicky way to just add more attention to the scene, mm-hmm. and it was pointless. We did not need it. There was it was useless, and it wasn't even believable. I mean, which is a nitpick thing, but I mean, those did not look like any frat boys. Um, and why? Why were they trying to attack this woman just because she had a flag while the rest of the people mm-hmm. are marching? Maybe that's, maybe that's, I mean, people are crazy, but I guess. that it just seemed... made no sense to me. And so I was like, this takes me out of it. I don't like it. Pointless. He should have gone more into <laughs> painting a photo or painting yeah. a painting instead of taking a photograph if that was a real thing that happened at the riot it seemed like a lot of the story is him saying uh riots are bad but these seven well eight people that are on trial here these people are good and they don't do anything bad but the government is trying to make them look like they're bad here's the conflict and so he's putting in scenes with them in the riots trying to calm things down which might be accurate but it's just not uh it's just trying to argue these are good people who got caught in a bad riot, which is, is just, I don't know. It's sort of sappy. It's sort of not what I'm used to with Sorkin. Cause I'm so used to social network and Steve jobs where the main characters are like bad people who might learn something. It seems like he's trying really hard to show that these are people who are the good guys and they have different beliefs and they have different ways of getting things done. But the government is trying to paint the picture that they're bad people, but they're good people. And that seems a little bit sappy. I don't know. Right. I think it may be interesting that because you haven't watched West Wing, and I have watched West Wing, that maybe I find that more typical of Sorkin. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's why I'm not as you know concerned with that portion of it. Because um, certainly, I mean, some work does need to be done to showcase, right? These are not actually bad people it is a sham of a trial that they're being placed that they're you know being arrested for uh and being prosecuted for but they didn't he didn't need to add in right that very gimmicky frat boy attack and then this man Mm -hmm. steps in as the white knight to stop it yeah like we didn't need that in order to help us sympathize with those characters and realize that yes they are being put on trial because of their politics and because the Nixon administration wanted to make a statement out of them. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, I can agree with that portion there. One thing that I did want to bring up was, and on this topic about painting versus photograph, is Bobby Seale, who was that eighth Mm -hmm. member of the trial. Um, He was arrested because he made like 20 minutes of a speech but the real reason he was arrested, certainly nothing to do with inciting riot, was because he's the chairman of the the national chairman of the Black Panther Party. Mm-hmm. And so when he went to Chicago to make a brief little statement, they were like, we got to nab him. And so they yep. did. And when he was on trial, he didn't have a lawyer because his actual lawyer was sick and in the hospital. And so he kept trying to ask, like, I need representation. And the judge, which we sort of talked about this way long ago, but such a comical judge. But apparently that was one of the most 
accurate parts of the film is how yeah the judge was really despicable. really that ridiculous yeah. from what i've read that was more accurate than most of the other stuff in the film and i will say him fighting for a new lawyer was also from what i've read relatively accurate is he just all the time would stand up and be like my lawyer's not here and then the judge would be like there's a lawyer right next to you and then it was just so much back and forth and so i think that was relatively well done but then when we get to the bound and gag scene which is such a uh such a strong part of this case is that bobby the judge got tired of bobby seal standing up so he had him taken into the back and bound and gagged to a chair so that he could sit there and not disrupt the court anymore which there is precedent that has happened in the court before so the judge was allowed to do it but it is ridiculous and it did happen for four days and in the movie it happened for five minutes so i think that should have been more fleshed out i think the way he directed the scene where he was bound and gagged i think it was half good half bad like i think it was effective in like the whole scene of them binding him and then carrying him back out and the judge is just nonchalantly just writing as if it's nothing to him like i think that's interesting but the downplay of it being five minutes in the movie and the downplay of it being like i don't know it could have been stronger more right. impactful because yeah that was an interesting in the wga panel when sorkin was mentioning that and brought that up in as one of the examples for this particular film of the reality is obviously it was bound and gag for four days in the film it's for five minutes but sorkin believes that's still conveying the truth of the matter that this black man who is clearly there just because they wanted to give a scary face for the trial uh for the jury um that he's the truth of that happening is still being conveyed, but it isn't stretched out for the four days. It just happens in the five minutes, and very clearly, very quickly, it gets resolved where the uh, lawyers approach the bench and they're like, "Yo, you got to. This cannot be allowed to happen in an American courtroom." Which, yes, never should have happened. That's insane that that judge did that. Um, but he was thankfully convinced to call it a mistrial and release Bobby Seale from being bound and gagged. And so Shaka King, who is the director for the Judas and the Black Messiah movie, which is an interesting little overlap because that movie, of course, is about Fred Hampton. And in Trial of Chicago 7, Fred Hampton is a brief part of it where mm. he sits behind Bobby Seale. And then, of course... The day that, I don't know if this happened in real life, but in the movie, the day after Fred Hampton is assassinated by Chicago police, um, he does that final stand where he's like, I don't have my lawyer. This is unfair. Give me my due rights. And then he gets bound and gagged for that. Um, and then so, yeah, it's in those five minutes that this gets resolved and you still see the horror of this taking place. But... Mm -hmm. Chaka King was arguing that you don't get to understand it as a torture, right? That was one of the words he used um, between it being this mm -hmm. moment of just absolutely despicable thing taking place versus it being a torture of four days of this man being dragged out in bondage and then being dragged back in the next day. And Sorkin mm -hmm. was, again, he was, they sort of had this 
little back and forth where that's interesting. Sorkin's, um, he was really saying, I do think that that still conveys the truth of it, even though it was only five minutes seen on screen. And then Chaka King was, if he were directing this movie, he would have leaned more into, at least for this instance, more into taking the photograph with the story and mm. showing the four days, which I just thought was a really interesting uh, subject that came up during that panel. I think from what you're saying that Aaron Sorkin's perspective is that this Bobby Seal getting bound and gagged is a puzzle piece that is part of the larger picture that he's trying to paint. And it's just an event that happened in the story. And it's a crazy thing that he wanted to depict. And for Shaka King, who I agree with, this is like the apex of the ridiculousness of this court trial. And it should have been like, this is the point where it turns from comical. Like these people are on trial for something stupid and they're playing on gags and they're like joking with the judge and like wearing cop outfits and judge uniforms just to like mess with him. And it just turns into horrifying. And like, you could have really nailed that in hard because this is like the ridiculousness of this man being singled out over and over again. And now he's being bound and gagged and forced into this courtroom when he doesn't even have a lawyer that he wants representing him. That's really just like the, the, last nail in the coffin that hammers in just how crazy this story is of this court trial and of this judge. And you really could have hammered that in a lot stronger if it was like more properly depicted and depicted over like a much longer period of time, the actual four days that he's sitting there through this. I think that would have been more, uh, more of a punch to the audience than five minutes. Interesting. So yeah, another interesting part of that um that movie and whether or not it should have maybe had more loyalty to the real situation but sorkin ended up doing that creative liberty and for some people it worked for you and shaka king it seemed it didn't but i just think Mm -hmm. that's another interesting part of the creative liberties there is there anything else you want to throw out there about try the chicago seven uh just joseph gordon levitt's character is not the best um, they try to make paint him as like the uh, the anti-hero that he's like he's the fighting force he's the prosecutor that's trying to put them in jail but he doesn't really believe it even though in real life the real person did believe that they should be in jail and he was just a bad guy and he tried to make Joseph Gordon-Levitt like the voice of reason on the prosecution side I think that's a little sappy that you know like everybody's a good guy deep down you know Right. I don't think he was saying everyone's a good guy deep down, but I think that was his his inclination to romanticize certain situations and show mm-hmm. like someone like Jordan Joseph Gordon-Levitt, his character could be ideologically opposed to those defendants, but he can still adhere to his core principles of we shouldn't be in the business of doing a political trial just because our administration doesn't like the politics or what these particular individuals represent. So I think that that particular creative liberty was more about that mm-hmm. part and not like I'm not trying to do any defense of the real well, Richard Schultz. But yeah, that is an interesting just, choice that he made there because you had at the end, Joseph Gordon-Levitt ends up standing with the people when Tom Hayden reads off the names of those killed in Vietnam since the trial began. And then you mm-hmm. had the other dude 
who was a part of the prosecution, I forget whatever his name was, but he gets up and leaves, but you see Joseph mm-hmm. Gordon stand. And so I think that's part of Sorkin wants to believe that you can disagree with me but still be a good person. I think that's what he wanted to see. And the real life didn't convey it, so he had to change it. Yeah, but it's teased as this big internal conflict for the character that he's that's like his whole character arc is he's struggling between uh ideological differences with the defense and his dedication to honesty in the court and it just doesn't really come off in any big way for the character it's just sappy in the end that he stands up and that he's like uh uh, i am the hero on the other side of the aisle and it's just i don't know it's just there's no big payoff really except him standing up which is sappy and it's i'm not a big fan right yeah i can i can see where that's coming from for me well because i'm partial because i like joseph gordon levitt no, and I well, also, yeah. again, my idealism, but I do like the choice of making somebody on the other side not be a total villain, especially because the judge is so ridiculously evil. I think that's, again, where his decision came into, okay, I got to give an impression of not everyone on this other side of the aisle in this trial is is horrible and despicable mm-hmm. so i think that was him just trying to introduce more complexity and some more nuance into it but i can see how people weren't didn't find that part of it resonant but okay so well, it's just, just like in in judas and the black messiah there's like the whole story like granted shaka king has a whole movie to tell the internal conflict for like stanfield's character as a black man who ideologically agrees with you know uh, civil rights activist, but is also working for the government as a uh, informant that is sort of detrimental to the civil rights movement. So he has that internal conflict, and Shaka King has a whole movie to do it, certainly. But it's just done so much more, such a more nuanced way than Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character. And I mean, I know Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character isn't the main focus of the movie, but a little more attention could have been put into that effort right it's like 100%. he's juggling too many balls at once in yeah. the trial i can see that yeah all right and so just to give the favorite lines for this one i wanted to highlight a couple there's one where once two of the jurors got disqualified because it was i think like the fbi just as department they sent a letter pretending to be from the Black Panthers, saying they were going to threaten their family just because Mm. those particular jurors were friendly to the the leftist defendants. They were all looking at who were the alternates who might be friendly for our cause, Um, and they all turned out to be people that definitely wouldn't be. And so Jerry Rubin's like, how come nobody's up here that looks like me? And Kunstler, who's the the lawyer for the defense he just looks around and he goes okay have any of you shown up to jury duty no then shut up (laughs) which i thought was a funny little moment there because yeah yeah, the exact type of people who wouldn't show up for jury duty are your abby hoffman's and jerry rubens of the world and then another one and this one's from abby hoffman when he was having that little battle with tom he was saying because Tom was saying we shouldn't try to defy the judge or unnecessarily make him angry. He's going to be the one sentencing us. They're like, it's a political trial anyway. 
and have Hoffman's like it's a revolution Tom you might have to hurt somebody's feelings another great standalone line there yeah there's some good lines in the movie but I think the dialogue overall is a little weaker even if there are some standouts but you know hopefully his next work will be better which last but not least his upcoming projects uh, Aaron Sorkin is currently going to write and direct a Lucille Ball biopic starring J.K. Simmons, and it is rumored to star. It was rumored to star Kate Blanchett as Lucille Ball, but I think as of January she has left the project, and it's rumored to be Nicole Kidman now. And Javier Bardem is also rumored to appear, so I think that should be interesting. See how he tackles "I Love Lucy." Be interesting. Your yeah, thoughts on sure. that, Ron? Uh, my only thoughts are, is Javier Bardem and J.K. Simmons, who are they going to be playing? Are they going to be the father of Lucille Ball? Is that how he's going to get his father-daughter dynamic in there? Maybe. Uh, I know that Javier Bardem is rumored to play Lucille Ball's uh, husband at the time, who was Desi Arnaz. He was... Her co-star on I Love Lucy, he's the guy who says, Lucy, I'm home. You know that gotcha. stuff? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, let's see, J.K. Simmons is playing someone called William Frawley. I don't know who that is. But that's the character name. Uh, William Frawley was, based on a quick Google search, no, he's just an actor. He was on I Love Lucy, so he was just another co-star. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that'll be... So I think it's interesting that's another biopic or at least just a non-fiction film. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested to see what framing device he'll use for this. It'll likely be something centered around that show. Um, but yeah, that'll be fascinating to see. And then it's also interesting that it's Lucille Ball. So he's looking now at this famous woman as compared to the famous men that he's looked at in the social network and Steve mm-hmm. Jobs. And one of the big criticisms for Sorkin is that he's bad at writing women characters. I have heard that. Which, yeah, I've heard that too. I, For me, with West Wing, C.J. Craig and Abby Bartlett, I think, are from non- phenomenal characters. So mm-hmm. that, to me, doesn't stick out. But then when you also see, I mean, how many female characters are there in Trans Chicago Seven, like one. Um, how many? Yeah. There's in... like Rooney Mara in Social Network. There's none in Moneyball, pretty much, except Robin Wright's character, but she's not in it a lot. Uh, Steve Jobs, the only notable female character, is uh, uh, Joanna. Joanna. Kate Winslet's and character, yeah. Kate Winslet, I mean, yes, that does, you. and she's she's good, and her character I think is written For well, sure. but still, he just doesn't do it very often. I guess Demi Moore's character is really good and A Few Good Men. Um, I don't know if Molly's Game is any good. That's all about a female character, Jessica Chastain. That could be good. I have no idea. I haven't seen it. Yeah, and I do think that's one of... It did get, I think you said, an Oscar nom, but one of his Mm -hmm. uh, lesser adored films. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how he takes on this female-centric movie. Um... Because, again, that is a criticism that is levied towards Sorkin. So mm. we'll see how that plays out. Uh, and hopefully it'll be great. We shall see. But definitely excited for it. I mean, mm. whether 
however you feel about Hopefully. Travel Chicago 7, definitely still got to be excited for any Sorkin project. Yeah, hopefully he can hone his directing techniques a little more. I think these Molly's game and trial have just been like warm ups, so hopefully he can yeah. the Is practice he directing has... this next one? Yes. Yes, Ooh, he's directing it. I think he wants to direct from now on all his features, which I mean, power to him. I just think he needs to hone the craft a little more and just practice a bit more. You know? Right, for sure. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see if we one day we might do a director's analysis with Sorkin and see how he's evolved in that role. Um, That'd be interesting. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, that's all the time we have. If you would like to give your thoughts on the show or make a suggestion for the movie of the week, you can email us at theboxofficeshow at gmail.com. Our main title theme for the show is Sundown by Joseph McDade. And this has been The Box Office Show. And don't forget, next week we are going to be doing our discussion for Justice League Snyder Cut. So make sure you watch that. Yep, be sure to tune in and hear us talk all about how good and bad it is. <laughs> the good parts, the bad parts, and everything in between. Have a great rest of your day.